My name is Nicholas Danforth, and I'm an editor at War on the Rocks. You are listening to The Warcast, the members-only podcast for what you need to know now. It appears that Benjamin Netanyahu has emerged victorious from Israel's elections yesterday, the fifth in under five years. Joining us to discuss this is Gabby Mitchell. Gabby is a policy fellow at the Mitfim Institute in Israel and director of undergraduate studies at the University of Notre Dame at Tantour. Welcome to The Warcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. To start off, tell us why there were elections in the first place. So, as you had mentioned, this is our fifth election in the last three and a half years. Uh, Each of these elections have essentially piggybacked off of the splintering of a Netanyahu-led government and have centered uh, primarily on the eligibility and qualifications of Netanyahu to lead the country uh, and whether a prime minister who is being indicted on multiple charges of bribery uh, can serve as the country's executive uh, executive leader. And each of the subsequent elections over the last five years has presented its own twists and turns. Um, however, each one had the same core theme, to Bibi or not to Bibi. Um, and this one was no different. And so what changed this time? Why did he win? So we don't exactly know yet whether he won. Um, The exit polls and the counting of ballots will run probably uh, into the end of today, November 2nd, and possibly uh, into November 3rd, depending on whether there's a need to count more ballots. Certainly the polling indicates that Netanyahu likely won, but this is uh, a very small uh, a small country with a relatively small voting population. Um, and so there, the, the margins for error can be quite significant. And so let's say just for the sake of argument that Netanyahu has won, because that's certainly what the current numbers look like. If Netanyahu has won, then uh, it's off of the back of three separate phenomena. First is his efforts over the last year to essentially essentially strengthen his position and remind the the core base of his constituency um, of his uh, and their dire need to reverse any kind of anti-Netanyahu or anti-Likud trends. The second is his efforts, uh, along with efforts of those around him, to strengthen and bolster the coalition of parties that form the pro-BB bloc. Uh, And in particular, the rising star of that faction seems to be uh, the National Religious Party and one individual in particular, Itamar Ben-Kvir, whose party now sits, at least according to the current polling, as the third largest party in the incoming Knesset, the incoming parliament. This party, which has uh, components of uh, modern orthodox uh, policy makers, uh, a mixture of pro-settlement movement voices and some of the far-right voices that exist in the settlement movement, um, has exceeded expectations and has really been the primary story outside of the central argument of, are you in favor of Netanyahu's leadership or are you not? And I would say that the third thing that's really important to point out is the number of small parties both uh, left-wing parties and Arab-Palestinian parties 
that may, at least according to right now, don't seem to be passing the electoral threshold. Israel has an electoral threshold of 3.25%. And as of right now, there are at the very least two parties uh, that are not going to pass that threshold. So the decision by those parties to not run in a united or joint list, to not combine efforts and, and forces, is something that's going to be uh, looked at and scrutinized in the eventuality that they do not succeed in passing that electoral threshold. So I would say that those are the three main trends that we've seen during this election cycle and the subsequent results. So then what do the results, assuming they're as they appear now, mean for Israeli domestic politics going forward? Well, the first is that the debate about whether there is a right camp and a left camp or a center-left camp um, that debate has uh, essentially been put to bed. Um, even in a, in a best case scenario, when we look at the uh, political map as it is currently constituted, there are roughly 65 seats in the future Knesset, the future parliament, that are going to go to right-wing parties. And the uh, opposition, let's say, or the parties that were opposed to Netanyahu's leadership also consisted of multiple parties that we would probably depict as, you know, uh, being soft right in their core policies, whether it be uh, their economic policies or their engagement on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. So the the center left or the left in Israel is in deep, deep crisis, and Israel Israel's voting public is effectively a right wing public. I think that that that's one thing that's quite clear. The second thing is that the efforts by the anti-BB bloc over the last three and a half years have not produced the desired results. Um, five elections over three years, mul multiple elections that were stalemates, but didn't produce uh, a clear victory against Netanyahu, and two moments in which these uh, exceptional circumstances produced governments that lacked uh, a tremendous amount of ideological cohesion, uh, cohesion and coordination between various party leaders, um, also suboptimal, right? And so I think that the question going forward for the opposition for this anti-BB camp is now what, right? What, is, what, are, what are the steps that we parties can do to reinvent ourselves in order to be better prepared for the next election, whether that be in one year or that be in four years. Um, so I think that, that that's that's another thing. And the final bit is, of course, relating to Netanyahu himself, is that the even if the, the, the total number of the Israeli voting public that supports Netanyahu is somewhere around 50 or 51 percent, that that voice is spoken. There isn't a sufficient number of uh, the voting public who is in favor of an alternative to Netanyahu to uh, vote him um, out of Israeli politics. And so there's this very interesting dilemma that's going to happen where uh, the sitting prime minister is also going to be uh, appearing in a courtroom. Are we, are we realistically going to be seeing that scenario? Or now that Netanyahu has returned, let's say, to Balfour Street, is he going to uh, find a way to delay cancel, annul the criminal charges against him, right? And so how that will affect the balance of powers 
uh, in in Israel and the role of, ju- of the judiciary, I think, is one of the most important questions going forward. And on the Israel-Palestine issue, last time Netanyahu was in office, he was talking about annexation at one point. Is that likely to return? What are the other implications likely to be? From my perspective, much of the annexation conversation that took place was framed both as a result of Netanyahu's dynamics with the Trump administration uh, and the possibility of leveraging that uh, into the Abraham Accords, in addition to domestic politics and using it within the context of uh, Israeli domestic politics. It's unlikely that we will see uh, another pursuit of annexation, especially considering the fact that uh, uh, Democrats uh, control the White House. Um, However, uh, given what we know about the current political map as it stands and the parties that are likely to be in uh, a future Netanyahu government, we will find some very uh, far right voices some of the biggest activists within the settlement movement likely pushing and endorsing policies that will uh, further distance Israel from the path of a two-state model or solution. And that'll place Netanyahu in tremendous pressure to either find parties in the Israeli center-left to function as a, as a, balancer, a balancer for these far-right elements that are no doubt going to be in his coalition, or to essentially walk the line between um, far-right positions in his government and those voices in the international community that will insist on Israel maintaining uh, either the status quo or a more moderated position when it comes to Israeli-Palestinian relations. Final question on foreign policy. We've recently seen moves like the maritime deal with Lebanon, uh, a slow rapprochement with Turkey, How are these likely to fare under the Netanyahu government? One of the interesting things that we've seen over the last couple of years due to the uh, lack of uh, internal cohesion and stability within the Israeli government and the continued process of election after election is that the prime minister, uh, whether it was Netanyahu or later Naftali Bennett or Yair Lapid, were essentially limited to making decisions on foreign policy decisions rather than engaging in domestic policy issues because they lacked uh, a majority in uh, in the Knesset. Um, Yair Lapid, most notably, who was a caretaker, essentially used the role and used the time that he was functioning as prime minister to advance foreign policy matters uh, as a way of bolstering his, uh, his uh, accolades and his qualifications in front of the Israeli electorate. Um, Netanyahu, on occasion, was very critical of those policies, as any good opposition leader would do, and Netanyahu has had many years of experience uh, in Israel's opposition and knows essentially how to um, target or critique the uh, foreign policy decisions of of other Israeli politicians. Um, However, I would say that Netanyahu, first and foremost, is a pragmatist. Um, And the maritime boundary between Israel and Lebanon, for the sake of example, which Netanyahu himself uh, endorsed those processes in over the last 10 years, is unlikely to overturn the decision. He may cool the process. Uh, He may raise concerns about certain elements of the agreement, um, but he's unlikely to completely undo something uh, that has already been agreed upon by a previous government. Same goes with normalization uh, between Israel and Turkey. 
though Netanyahu and Erdogan have uh, no lo love lost between the two of them, uh, he's unlikely to reverse the policy of, uh, of normalization and the full return of diplomatic relations, but he may cool or slow down the process of normalization that had certainly uh, been ramped up by, uh, by Prime Minister Lapid and others within his coalition. So Netanyahu isn't gonna necessarily break everything that was built or constructed over the last year. He, he has bigger foreign policy fish to fry, uh, notably with the conversation and status of the Iran deal, other normalization or potential normalization agreements with Saudi Arabia, and of course, uh, we don't want to ignore the fact that there is a war that is still going on in Ukraine. Um, but I don't see him uh, undoing those processes, maybe just cooling off the enthusiasm surrounding them um, and making everyone aware that there's, uh, you know, the old voice is is back in office. And only since you brought it up, one final, final question. Is this likely to change Israel's policy towards Ukraine? I don't think so. The, you know, the, the situation in Ukraine uh, cuts along a series of national security interests for Israel that I don't think are uh, partisan issues in Israeli politics. Um, the reality is, is that Israel must have an open line of communication with Russia uh, for multiple reasons, largely to do with the fact that the Russian military uh, sits and operates in Syria but also due to Russia's relationship, close relationship with other actors in the uh, region that are either belligerent uh, or perceived to be belligerent by Israel uh, or uh, are actually partners with Israel. And so um, I think that Israel is always in a, in a difficult situation um, when it comes to taking a harder line or taking as hard a line as other European or Western countries when it comes to Russia due to its relative proximity uh, to Russia and Russia's role uh, in Middle Eastern affairs. Thank you so much for joining us on The Warcast. Thank you.